series on Galatians or staying in Galatians. And, um, and I want to jump in. And Andy did an excellent job a couple weeks ago moving us through Galatians 1. And so I'm going to tie up the end of Galatians 1. And just remembering this is Paul who's writing this to the churches in Galatia. And um, these are churches that he helped found and taught in and traveled and ministered in. And so as, a, as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were those that were not Jewish by birth. And so they were seen as what they would call uncircumcised. They worshiped idols. They had different culture than the Jewish people. They had a different religion. And so they were seen as less than in many cases, but absolutely seen as different than. And Paul had a calling on his life to minister and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And even though he was born a Roman citizen, he was also born a Jew. He was zealous in his study of Judaism. He came up through the ranks as a young man and known for his, his, um, his mind and his ability to understand the, the Old Testament scriptures and to teach them. And so he was recognized as someone who was at the top of his class in Judaism. And because of that, he was commissioned early on after Jesus' death Paul was commissioned to go around and persecute the, this sect of Judaism called the Christians or the followers of the way or the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. And so his, his task was to go and arrest them or to have them beaten and in some cases to have them killed to try to stop this movement that was declaring that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had established a new covenant which was doing away with the old covenant. All of the things that Paul had spent his life learning and believing in were being undone by this by these these new, this, these new followers of Jesus. And so he went and he persecuted them. And then as we know from his story and then from Acts that Jesus intercepted him and awakened his heart to, to the reality of who Jesus was. And then Paul began to have a revelation of Jesus based on all of the things he had learned, but also the spirit of God showing him and teaching him the gospel. And so Paul's trying to establish that he is a he is an apostle to the Gentiles, but what's happening is that there are people who are coming from the Christians in Jerusalem who are coming to these Gentiles that Paul is converting, and they're telling them that you have to follow the religion of Judaism. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. You have to essentially become Jewish to be able to receive the Jewish Messiah. And so they were trying to give them rules and, and, and stipulations that said you have, to follow, you have to follow the law. And so Paul is saying, my authority is not coming from the Jerusalem church. My authority comes from this conversion moment between me and Jesus and my journey with Jesus to have this revelation of the gospel that I am teaching to you. And I am not saying I come from Jerusalem. I am saying my gospel comes directly from Jesus. And so this is what Paul is trying to establish uh, as he writes to, to the Galatian churches. And so he's telling them this story. He says in verse 18, Galatians 1, after three years, um, I spread the gospel. He spread the gospel in Damascus and the surrounding countryside. I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Why does that matter? Because like I said, Paul's trying to establish that his authority is not coming from Peter or James or the Jerusalem Christians. 
that throughout Paul's ministry, you see, as you read different letters that he wrote, you will see that he was constantly questioned. His apostleship was constantly brought into contention by those who would try to come in and teach legalism into his churches and to the people that he was discipling. So um, he, he was there to defend the simplicity of the gospel. In verse 21, and then eventually... I went, up to see, I went to Syria and Cilicia, which would have been Tarsus, where he was born, and Antioch, which is where some of this story takes place. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea uh, that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. I love this powerful testimony. In verse 24, and they praised God because of me. So let there be, if nothing else this morning, let there just be a simple encouragement in this, is that Paul was as far from Jesus as you could possibly imagine, and Jesus intercepted him and changed his entire life to the point that now he's coming back to these folks that he previously was persecuting. They know the stories of what he had done to them. And so in fear, and trepidation, they slowly began to receive him in. But when they saw and heard the gospel, his story, his testimony, and the gospel that he was proclaiming, they praised Jesus because of him. And so I want us to be encouraged in that this morning because I know that if we think about this in terms of Paul and his story and what God did in that divine encounter was so amazing. But I also know that each one of us carry people in our hearts that we are longing to have for God to have a divine encounter with them and to change their hearts and to change their minds. And I simply want us to look at Paul's life as an encouragement that God is pursuing every single human on this planet, that he is after those that you are concerned for and praying for, that he is after them even more than you are, if you can imagine. He loves them more than you do, and he has the opportunity and the means to be able to intercept their life in a way that would be miraculous, that they would come back and tell you a story of how Jesus intercepted their life. I want that to be on our minds and our hearts as we walk out of this place today. If you hear nothing else, is that God is pursuing those that I'm praying for, that I am loving on, that I am waiting on. Take some pressure off of yourself. Not to go like, oh, it doesn't matter, because your prayers do matter. But also, Take some pressure off of yourself, maybe in every single interaction that you have with someone, that you don't have to be the sole reason that they turn to Jesus because you said just the right thing in just the right moment and you're holding every encounter with so much stress and maybe even fear that it doesn't allow you to simply exude grace and love in those interactions. You don't have to rescue that person. Jesus is after them. And he may want to use you more powerfully if you're not operating in fear and worry and hand-wringing and you're able to give them over to the Lord and then walk with the Lord in pursuit of that person that may not look like you, as I said, having to say the exact right thing every time that you interact with them. Just have some grace for yourself and have some grace for them and let the love of Jesus exude through your life and watch what happens. Just be encouraged in that. Um, after 14 years, Paul goes on to tell his story. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This might be the, the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15. This time I took Barnabas, who was a, a former member of the Jerusalem church that, that James was leading. I took Titus, who was a Gentile convert, along also. I went to, in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I want you to see how Paul approached this. He, he went to them. And he met privately with them. This is generally Paul's heart of how he would deal with conflict. He met privately with them 
with these esteemed leaders. He's giving them honor. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. The centrality of the gospel in, G in Paul's life was that I would not waste a moment, an ounce of time, of prayer, of energy, advancing anything other than the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace and mercy and the truth of who he was. That's all Paul cared about. And this is what he burned for. This is what he lived for. And he went to them to just say, this is what I'm preaching. And I want you to hear what I'm preaching. And I want you to understand what I'm preaching because I don't want to be wasting my time. And so he goes on to say, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Understanding, why is Paul putting this in there? Because this is a big deal. And as they were coming into this Jerusalem council, they would have been presenting themselves. This is how we live before the Gentiles. This is what we preach before the Gentiles. And nobody in that gathering of the church of Jerusalem, the leadership of Jerusalem said to any of them, and especially to Titus, who was a Gentile, that he needed to be circumcised to be able to experience the right hand of fellowship, as he goes on to say with the, with the brothers and leaders and sisters. So not even Titus, was, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves, to bring us back into slavery to the law. This is a very interesting way to say that people were, were, were sneaking around and taking a look at private things to be able to decide whether we were following the law or not. People came in, literally he's saying, people came to spy on us so that they knew whether or not we were circumcised. That's just weird. <laughs> we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul came with this accusation. They're not following the law. They're not having people be circumcised. They, brought, they came before James and Peter and, the, and the, the apostles in Jerusalem and said, that's true because this is the gospel we're preaching. It has nothing to do with your external and the circumcision and the following of the calendar and the following the law. It has everything to do with the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ. And this is this, that's it. And they said, that's all. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the law. And so there, Paul's establishing this very, very clearly in this letter. And for those who we held in high esteem, those apostles, those leaders of the early church, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So he's saying clearly that they, had to, they, didn't, add, they didn't have to add anything to them in what they were doing and following Jesus. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. And if you jump down to verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing, that I had been eager to do all along. I love this, that this connection with us, with them truly following the gospel was to take care of the poor, to continue to take care of the poor. And there's more to that story. The Jerusalem church was being persecuted heavily by the Romans at that time. And so there was much um, poverty among the early church because of that persecution. So he says, remember the poor. He's not just saying, remember the people that are on the, on the streets near your house. Which, which is true as an outlay of the gospel. But what he's specifically saying is that those of us in Jerusalem who are following the way of Jesus are being persecuted. We can't work. We can't feed our families. And so it is through the shared generosity of the body of Christ as a whole that we are able to be, that we are able to be sustained. And so the early church leaders said, we don't see anything wrong with the gospel that you're preaching, but we do ask that you remember to take care of those who are laying down everything to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? 
Um, okay, so then when Peter came, verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say then because that's an implied reading into that. This, in fact, could be taking place before that Acts 15 Council of Jerusalem. This could be taking place before what we just read, uh, this story that we read about him going to Jerusalem. But it could be after. But he said, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. These are those that were saying you have to follow the law in order to follow Jesus. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Paul's co-worker, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, meaning that as a follower of Jesus, he had overthrown his Jewish expectations and he wasn't following them anymore. And yet, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then when you, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Why is it that you're creating second-class citizens within the kingdom is the question that Paul is asking them. And so as I shared earlier, Paul's heart, and he, we saw it when he came to the council, is that he went behind closed doors and he had these, these confrontation or these conflict-type conversations with them. Hey, am I doing okay? I know that there is contention between us. I know I'm coming here because I've, it's been revealed to you that we are not following the circumcision laws, that we're not following all these laws. I'm here to deal with this conflict and show you what I'm preaching. So this is how Paul typically deals with things. But in this particular case, he calls Peter out in front of everyone, and, and there is this place of contention that grows between them. And this place of contention is based on the fact that Peter is publicly living out his relationship with Jesus in a way that is drawing people back into religion instead of, instead of continuing them into freedom. And so what you have happening is that all of the Jews that are there visiting and, and, and sitting around the table are excluding the Gentiles who they just got done saying, if we believe that this is sequential, they just got done saying, there's nothing that we need to add to your gospel. Make sure that you take care of the poor. You're good to go. Peter is agreeing to live this out. And yet as soon as there's some degree of contention, Peter is going back to, is it racial? Is it class systems? Is it just so deeply ingrained in him? And that fear of whatever it is, and he begins to live this out publicly. And because it's a public choice of Peter to do this, Paul has to respond in a public matter. And so he, in a public manner. And so he calls Peter out. Paul's gospel didn't care about being adopted into the covenant, didn't care about following the law. Peter's didn't either, and that's what they had come to agreement upon. James's didn't either. That's what, we, that's what they came to agreement on in Acts 15, Galatians 2. That's why this is so alarming to Paul. We just had this conversation, and now you're choosing to live this out in a different way. For we who are Jews by birth... We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles, he says. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying, we do not have to follow the law to be justified. We are justified by 
Jesus. It is our allegiance to Jesus, our faith in Jesus that is justifying us, not our adherence to the law. And so where Paul, and this is just an interesting little note that I think it's good for us to know as we're reading in other places where Paul is speaking, is when he says, just by faith and not by works. This is a place where sometimes we read that into that, those types of verses. We read ourselves into them and we think, okay, we need to be saved by faith and not by the things that I do. But understand that when Paul, whenever Paul references works, he's referencing works of the law. So across the board, when he's saying you are saved by faith, not by works, he's saying you are saved by faith, not by works of the law. That is what it means in context, is that he's constantly preaching this gospel. He says you are not gonna be saved or justified by following the law, not by the works of the law, but by the work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Um, and so, and so in, when he shorthands that in other places, in other letters that he writes, that's what he's referencing. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. That means if we're not following the law, are we among the sinners? Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Did Christ invite us into letting go of the law to call us then sinners? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be the lawbreaker. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So understand the beauty of this passage is that, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I know that we love to read ourselves into that verse and that's okay. It's a powerful reality that I want us to understand is that I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He was stuck in an old covenant. The only way out of that covenant is through death. Jesus lived under the covenant. He completely the covenant through his death and in his resurrection he was able to fulfill the the covenant and then do away with the covenant and begin an entirely new covenant and for those who started under the covenant the way that they come out from under the covenant you don't just get to say i don't want to be in this agreement anymore god there has to be a fulfillment of this and this is unto death and so it is important that this gospel that they are preaching is high on this sense of this reality that they are dead in Christ, that I have been buried with Christ, that I have been resurrected with Christ, that I no longer live in that old law and in the old covenant. That has been done away with when I died with and in Jesus so that I can come alive with and in Jesus into a new covenant. When we are baptized, we are baptized into Jesus's death and the end of the law and the end of all of the rituals and the end of the earning and the finding righteousness in the law and all of our sin and we are dead to all of that and we come out of the water, out of the grave, alive, able to now participate in the new covenant that Jesus has created through dying to the old law, the old covenant, and coming alive and creating a new covenant. 
that we are in and invited into now. So the reality of death being at the center of what he's saying, I no longer live. I have died with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so when we say, I am born again in Jesus, it's a beautiful Allusion to Nicodemus, to the conversation that we have to be spiritually born again to, in, to engage with the spiritual kingdom. And I understand that. But really what we need to understand that what we're saying, when we are saying we are being born again, we are making a covenantal declaration that it's important for the maturity of our faith and our understanding of scripture to know that when we say we are born again, we are saying, I am able to step into a new covenant. I died with Jesus from the old and that old covenant, and I am alive with Jesus to enter into the new covenant. Does that make sense? I hope that made sense. Does that make sense? You guys are all like, oh, it makes sense, yeah? Questions? I'm not taking questions at this time. <laughs> all right. Someone's texting all their questions over here. Let's see. Yeah, like, what's he saying? <laughs> we'll talk later. Okay, good. Whew. All right. So for the next few minutes, I, I want to, um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about my process in studying this. So that's the background. That's the, that's the beauty of this portion of the letter. And, we'll, and I'm looking forward to continuing to dive into it next week. And we'll go into chapter three and, and spend some time uh, over the next couple of weeks in, in chapter three. And there's some really good stuff that God wants to unfold. But a lot of times as I'm studying um, for, for, for getting to teach on a Sunday morning, I am trying my best to look at, look at this historically and, and understand it in context so that then we can bring out things that we can learn that jumps across, as hard as it can be, the divide of time and language and culture and that we can bring things that are still timeless truth or principles about, about God or principles about following Jesus or the character and nature of God that we can bring and, and then we can allow those to, to permeate our hearts and lives and minds and we can carry those and learn those. And that's really how I'm uh, trying to unpack passages of scripture as I, as I teach them. But then there's other times like this week where there's just an experiential reality to what I'm doing where I couldn't get past um, and I kept coming back to, I couldn't get past this conflict between Peter and Paul. And, and at first I was like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm just gonna kind of sit on this personally and whatever, but he kept bringing my heart back to this, this conflict in the church, this, this, this fight almost that they're having where you don't really even see if it's resolved. And as you study and look at other, look down the line in the New Testament and in some different passages and places, you see um, a little bit more of the story unfold, but it's not really told to us what happens. And, and I begin to ask the Lord, why is this relational conflict that's taking place between Peter and Paul, why is it grabbing my attention so much? Why am I unable to move past this? And, and the Lord just began to talk to me and show me what I was feeling because I was feeling this to my core and I began to feel grief over and imagine the early church watching as Peter and Paul are, 
are having this disagreement and they're not sure what's happening or where to go or what to do. And I feel that to my bones and I begin to feel just a deep sadness. And I begin to actually feel a grief over these two men. And I know I'm not trying to like overplay my emotional connectivity to that moment as if I tapped into some something there, but I just was feeling that. And I'm going, God, why am I feeling that? And he just began to show me how much that hits home for me and for us in this time of like, I am seeing in Peter and Paul this disconnection that I've been feeling happening in the church for the last few years and I grieve over it and it breaks my heart to see people breaking relationship within the church. And so I just was sitting with that and going, God, I don't, I don't wanna turn this into a message or talk about this unless I believe that this might be applicable to us as a whole. And he encouraged me just to spend a few minutes at, at the end of our time this morning, really just sitting in that place of thinking about relational disconnect that we might be having or have experienced or that we might be carrying right now in our lives. As the Lord kept bringing me back to this, I understood that this disconnect that Peter and Paul were having, it wasn't just a doctrinal dis, dis, dispute. I knew, I can tell you why Paul had to do it. It was about the purity of the gospel of Jesus and it needed to happen. But even after understanding it and explaining it to you this morning as I have, I was still just kind of sad. The disconnect triggers something in me. And I know that being triggered is sort of a buzzword these days. Everything is triggering everybody all the time. But this really did trigger me to feel this relational disconnect between Christians that I think we have all been feeling and experiencing. The state of the church where we are right now and seeing believers ending and damaging relationship over, not over gospel things, like Paul was willing to risk his relationship with Peter over the gospel, but that we're risking relationship over lesser things. Paul was defending the truth of the story and the reality of Jesus, and he was willing to break relationship. We're out here breaking relationship over what somebody liked on Facebook. And I'm not saying that there's not times that we do need to confront believers within our own relationships and within our own house. But one of the things that will bring you to a dead end relationally really fast is when you try to rebuke or bring correction to places where you don't have authority and you don't have influence. And if you don't have authority and you don't have influence, you don't have a word to speak to that person or about that person. But when we do and we begin to speak out of turn, quickly we are aligning ourselves with the purposes of the enemy against his church. And we are stepping into places of gossip and slander rather than actually accomplishing any sort of correction that we may feel like we are supposed to bring. The reason that Paul spoke so adamantly and vehemently was because he had authority and he had influence and he had opportunity to speak it. When I speak out of turn to places where I don't have authority, if I try to speak into your family or your marriage or your life and I have no authority, all I'm gonna do is be a clanging symbol that is coming with judgment and pointing fingers at how you're failing. And that doesn't help you change at all. And all that does is it begins to fray and fragment a relationship between us. And that's not healthy. That's not what God wants us to do. As I said, I know that there are places and times when we need to confront other believers. 
But we also have to understand as we interpret scripture that everything that happens in the Bible does not give you permission to replicate everything that happens in the Bible. Paul confronting Peter doesn't give you precedent or permission to do the same to fellow believers today. Doesn't give you permission to do that any more than Jesus flipping tables or money changers of the money changers permits you to physically attack things or people that you deem as unrighteous, right? We know that. I hope we know that. I'm not Jesus, you're not Paul. You're not Jesus, I'm not Paul. And some of the things that the Lord's just putting on my heart that I wanna share with you is fragmenting us relationally. One of them is taking our offenses or our disconnects public, but not to the person, publicly or privately. But if we just air our grievances with people or with culture or the way a church does something or the way a leader does something or something somebody said or they did this or they did that, now let me share with you my opinion on that. We're fragmenting that person and we're fragmenting people who are in relationship with us. That relationship with that person may never, we may never have that relationship and we're not stewarding that, but we are stewarding this relationship. And that matters. If we take our offense to others instead of to the person that we're upset with. If we take our offense public, it becomes slander. If we take our offense private, it becomes gossip. Our disconnect can grow in the spotlight and our disconnect can also grow in secret. Another thing that we tend to do is that we speak in anger to tear down rather than grace to build up. And we go, what? I'm just speaking the truth in love. Love whispers. And if you can't get close enough to somebody's life to whisper truth into their ear, then you probably shouldn't be speaking. Love is intimate. Love is close. Love brings us into proximity. And those I love, I can whisper something to and they will hear me. If I have to shout for someone to hear me, I am not showing them love. And I am not communicating in love. And this is what we look like when we say, oh, we love this culture, so let us shout from over here how terrible, messed up, messy, wrong they are. Instead of humbling ourselves and saying, Jesus, teach us how to love culture in such a way that we can be embedded in it into the point of being able to speak the truth in a way that people will hear. Because when we step in and do life with people, we are now gaining what? Authority and influence. Authority and influence, I'm not talking about it as a positional thing. I'm talking about it as relational equity. With relational equity, you gain authority and influence to be able to speak truth to people. But what begins to happen is that you're not going, I'm going to love this person so that I can speak the truth to them. You're gonna say, I want to love this person. Another thing that we do is that we hold offense. The Lord showed me a picture of a child holding their favorite teddy bear or their favorite um, blanket and that they walk around with that. And, and for some of us who have kids, we've seen our kids carry a particular teddy bear for years and we have tried. We would do that, okay, can I, can I have that thing? And you sneak it away, right? And then they find it and then before you know it, they're carrying it around again. We can become like that with a fence where it just becomes so familiar that we don't even realize that we're carrying it and when we don't have it, we don't feel complete because a fence has become our story. 
And so we carry these things without even realizing. We become numb to offenses that we're carrying. We become blind to offenses that we're carrying as if we're that child carrying around a teddy bear. And um, I'm gonna have the worship team come back up with these last 15 minutes that we have together. Sorry, I meant to call you guys up a couple minutes ago. My bad. Numbing ourselves to the unforgiveness that we carry. I think that um, there's a lot to unpack when we start talking about unforgiveness. And, um, I know that, I, that any of us could teach for probably days and days and days on unforgiveness because it's, it's, it's very nuanced, right? And when I get up here, I wanna be like, hey, I understand that, that people um, in this room have experienced deep trauma and woundedness, that you have been deeply hurt by people. And for someone that doesn't maybe know you or walk in life with you to stand up in front of you with a microphone and say, you just need to forgive, can seem extremely disjointed and can be almost painful. It can feel like the religion is being heaped back onto you that I'm trying so hard not to put onto you. And so I am always wanting to hedge to, uh, to like move ahead of this conversation and say, but this and but this and but this. But at the end of the day, there is a journey that none of us are exempt from to journey with Jesus towards forgiving every single person in our life, no matter what they've done to us. And I am not saying that from the front as an edict that says, and you need to do it right now, this way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying sometimes for us, for you, forgiveness is God showing you that you have an offense and you go, God, you're right, please forgive me. I will go make it right with that person. That's forgiveness. For some of us, it is walking with Jesus into a place that he may take us in baby steps that may take years to say, Jesus, I'm ready to walk towards forgiveness. And he will say, come with me. I will walk this with you. As long as you commit to walking with me, I will take you to that place. And it's gonna be about Jesus walking you continually into this act, this supernatural act of forgiveness. And so those are like the the things that I wanna put around this conversation, of course. But I wanna come back to this place of this passage just kind of making me sad. Because who really benefits when Christians fight and when Christians are divided? And, and as Jesus said, a kingdom divided cannot stand. And Paul tells us not to argue. Paul tells us not to fight one another. Paul tells us not to devour one another with our sarcasm, with our words. And he tells us in Colossians 3 to bear with each other and to forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And it still just hurts. And I realize that the depth of emotion that I've been feeling this week, it wasn't just mine about sadness about the church. It was his. And I'm not trying to go on some sort of ego trip of saying, oh, I feel God's, I'm able to enter into the fullness of God's emotions or whatever. If I felt an, an ounce of God's emotions, I would be flattened on this stage of his compassion or of his love or of his desire for wholeness, for his desire for reconciliation. But I just began to feel the tiniest bit of his emotion. 
my prayer as a pastor for years and years and years has been, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And what I felt this week was just his broken heartedness over the state of unreconciled, unrepentant, broken relationships within his body. And I'm not saying that to stand in judgment to you and go, it's your fault. You have to fix it. You have to do this. I'm simply saying, I believe that he's inviting us to bring those relationships that you're thinking about right now that are painful, that are fragmented, that are broken, and to bring those to the altar and to lay them down this morning.